So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the sun. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people, and so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God, so don't do that. Which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice, superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily, but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? 
Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says, and it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, this final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now, they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end, a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. All right. So let's take out a sheet of paper. <laughs> We're going to have a test. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. Um, so with all of that kind of as a backdrop, which I think was, hopefully that was helpful, at least to kind of give you an overview of where we're going to go in, in this series and kind of the things we're going to talk about. Um, but today, in particular, we're going to focus on chapter one. And I have uh, given, it, given the message, the title, but who does God say that he is? And the title is, is really a play on words of Jesus, taken from, uh, actually the story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so the Synoptic Gospels, each of those has this particular story or some version of it. And in the story, the way it goes, Jesus and his disciples are walking somewhere, and he, sort of out of the blue, asks them, well, who do people say that I am? And so his disciples give him a variety of answers. They say, well... Some people think um, you're one of the prophets. Some people think you're Elijah, come back to life. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Jeremiah. Uh, basically, what they were telling Jesus is they don't really know <laughs> who you are. And so he then turns to them and says, well, so who do you say that I am? And boldly, and that was sort of Peter's trademark, was boldly, uh, however impetuously, was also another one of his trademarks. But boldly, Peter steps forward and he, he provides the correct answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that and basically tells him that man, man didn't tell him this, that that had to have been revealed from God. Um, and so we kind of see that very same backdrop of this idea of who is Jesus throughout the letter that we're going to be looking at over the next eight Sundays. And um, specifically in a moment, 
The author of Hebrews starts out by contrasting Jesus with angels, as the video mentioned. But in the process, what he, what he does is he tells us what the Father has to say about the Son. So let's dive in at this point. We're going to go uh, to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. All right, we'll have it up here, uh, ESV version on the screens, um, but feel free to follow along in some other translation. And so here we go, Ch verse 1 of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire but of the sun he says your throne O god is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and you lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. All right. It's a lot there. And I would encourage you as we kind of go through this series, um, so if you want to, just take some time in the week ahead and just kind of read over these verses. And do. I thought what the, the young man on the video said was really a, you know, a good point. And that's go back and look at some of these references. Most Bibles have a... Um, kind of a cross-reference where you'll see, usually in, in really tiny print somewhere <laughs> on the side or at the bottom, uh, where a particular passage or part of a verse has been taken from somewhere else. And so you can actually look back and see um, where uh, that's come from in Scripture. But we're going to do that a little bit today. So let's look at this. What does God have to say about Jesus? Well, I think what he's saying, if you had to lump it all together, is he is saying that Jesus is our final, full, definitive revelation of God himself. And so what exactly is it that God says that makes him that, as he is uh, writing these words? And so I think the first thing he says is God says that Jesus is his son. We look at verse 5 and, and find that. 
And so this first quote, you are my son today, you are my son, today I have begotten you, comes from a coronation psalm. Um, it's actually a psalm that was originally sung at the crowning of a new king, probably David or Solomon. And um, it was used for centuries in the Jewish tradition as a song of worship. But the thing was that the Jewish rabbis attached a much deeper meaning to this particular song, one that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And because the Messiah fulfilled all of the promises of the Old Testament, the writer understands that these Old Testament verses apply to Jesus. And so the, it's, it's interesting because he's in this present tense he says, you are my son. And that describes a continuing relationship, right? Jesus didn't become God's son. Jesus is God's son. The father acknowledged him as his son in a special way when Jesus was enthroned on high. See, the Bible calls the angels sons of God, but not the son of God. No angel or person other than Jesus could ever receive that honor. And the second quotation is another passage which uh, most scholars widely accept as referring to the Messiah. And it comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. And this idea of the father-son relationship is again a key aspect to this. Because it marks the Messiah as distinct from the creator-creature relationship that God has with the angels. Right? The angels were finite. They were created. Jesus was not created. Jesus was and is and will be. And so in this particular psalm, if you look at it historically, the words could sort of be found to have a partial fulfillment in Solomon. But the perfect fulfillment did not come until David's greater son, which was Jesus. So at the very beginning, Jesus is called the Son of God by God himself. Next thing we see is that Jesus is the eternal king. And you can look at verses 8 and 9 to find that. Now, in the psalm that's quoted here, these uh, words come from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And uh, interestingly, that psalm originally celebrated a royal wedding. That was sort of the, the whole focus from it. Um, but again, it was widely recognized to have a much broader meaning and extended to have some, like a messianic um, component to it. And so the words tell us three things about the role of the son, and each one of them is expressing this superiority to angels. First of all, the son has a throne and is a ruler. You could not say that of an angel, clearly. Second, the throne will last forever. It's eternal. And as I said, angels are not eternal. They had a beginning. God created them at some point in time. And the third is that the Son loves righteousness. Nothing delights God more than when somebody loves his righteousness. And the anointing that we see in this verse really serves the purpose of focusing attention on yet another aspect of the superiority of the Son. It's important, because remember who this is being written to, all right? Predominantly Jewish Christians who understand all of the Jewish laws and all of the Jewish 
traditions and the heritage and so forth. And so when you're talking about the high priesthood of Jesus, which he goes on to talk about later on in the letter, they would all know that all priests were anointed, that that was, if you were a priest that came from Aaron's line, you were going to be anointed as a priest. And so that's why it's important that he here talks about Jesus in the sense of being anointed with the oil of gladness. So Jesus, not only the Son of God, but also a righteous eternal king. Next, we find the idea of Jesus being unchanging. We look at verses 10 through 12 for that. And this comes from Psalm 102. And what the writer is doing is he's drawing attention to this one particular aspect of Jesus, and that is his changelessness. His changelessness. See, the earth and the heavens seem pretty substantial, right? But they're going to perish. Eventually, they will be no more. And this was probably to sort of combat this attitude in that was widespread in the Greco-Roman culture was that the world, and indeed the whole universe, was indestructible. That's the way they thought about it. And so what he's saying is that the Christian view that he's talking about here is obviously in stark contrast to that. That it has a temporary nature. It's not changeless. And so it only serves to heighten the distinction between the creation and the creator. And it also focuses attention on just this unshakable stability that Jesus has. You know, there's this picture of God rolling up the heavens and the earth like a tattered, worn-out garment and as, as if they're no further use. And so in the face of the disintegration of society, and can I just say that we should make no mistake about it, if you're not aware of this, our society is disintegrating? If you don't believe me, take a look at what the General Assembly is considering right now in terms of law. And so in the face of that disintegration, the unchangeable character of the sun stands out in stark contrast. It's a famous hymn, probably many of you have heard it, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. It was written by a man named Edward Mode, and it captures this truth of the changelessness of God. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And finally, God says that Jesus is powerful. In no time are angels ever conceived of, of as sitting. And so therefore, this enthronement of Jesus as seated at the right hand of the Father truly establishes the superiority that he has. Because not only does it stress his sovereignty, but also his absolute power over his enemies, including death. And so, as we get to the end of chapter 1, the author, in these 14 verses that have included seven Old Testament references, has told us exactly what God says about Jesus. That he's the Son, that he is the eternal righteous king, that he is unchanging, and that he is powerful beyond compare. And so in doing so, he's saying that Jesus is the final, full, definitive revelation of God. 
Now, I think I could put it in a little bit simpler, and I will give credit to Bill Johnson for this, because Bill Johnson says that Jesus is perfect theology. And I think that says what I said earlier in much simpler terms. During a trip to Portland, Oregon, there was uh, a noted atheist. Perhaps you've heard of Christopher Hitchens. Um, well, anyway, he went to, to Oregon, and when he, on this trip, he was interviewed by a Unitarian minister whose name was Marilyn Sewell. And the following exchange took place right at the, at the offset of the interview. So uh, the interviewer, Marilyn Sewell, starts out and she says, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories from scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Well, Hitchens, the atheist, says this. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. <laughs> well, Sewell wanted no part of that discussion, so her next words are, let's go someplace else. And I think what's really interesting about this is this little snippet demonstrates uh, an important point about religious God talk, right? You can call yourself anything you like, but if you don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead, then you, in the words of an atheist, are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Isn't that sort of one of these delicious ironies? That an outspoken atheist understands the central tenet of the Christian faith better than most Christians do. See, what you believe about Jesus Christ really does make a difference. So the question I've got to leave you with today is this. Who do you say that he is? You may have been in church for a long time. You may have an understanding, like, like many people, that, that Jesus was a great teacher or that Jesus was a, great, a man of great moral character or that Jesus was one of the wisest, smartest men that ever lived. And he was all of those things. But if you stop there, you can't really call yourself a Christian, can you? So it's important that, that you answer that question, who do you say that he is? And I find this is so important, too, for younger Christians, because so often we younger um, believers who have been raised up in a Christian family, they come out of that family and what they're carrying with them is their parents' faith. Now that's okay because you have to start somewhere. 
But they, that's not where it ought to stop. Because a young believer has got to get to a point where they appropriate that faith for themselves. And it becomes theirs, not their parents any longer. Right? And so if, if you fall into that category, then it's very important that you think about how you're going to answer that question. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Guys, if you would start playing just a little bit, just but we're not done here yet, quite. Kyle's going to play, team's going to play, and so we're just going to be quiet for a moment. Maybe just kind of get a sense uh, of what God wants to do next. same token, if you have never truly professed who you think, who you believe, not think, but who you believe he is, then I want you to, I, well, I shouldn't say I want, I believe God is providing you this opportunity to get that straight. And so, just as, as, as Chip did that, there's nothing that you have to do, that you have to get up, you have to come forward. If you want to do that, that's fine. And I think there is some power in that, because when um, you recall that oftentimes in Scripture, Jesus asked the people that came to him for miracles to do something, right? My favorite is always the man who was born blind, who's crying out to Jesus, and Jesus says, well, what do you want? To a lot of people, that's kind of a, duh, I'd like to see. But see, he made, he, he, he made the man say, this is what I want you to do. He, made, he told the man with the withered arm, stretch out your hand. So sometimes there's an action that needs to happen in response to an invitation that God makes. And so 
that's why sometimes getting up and coming and talking to somebody or making that profession is important. But as I said, you don't have to do that. One of the things we preach about continually here is that we want people to be authentic. Right? Whatever is authentic to you is what is important. Right? So if you're not someone who stands and jumps and waves your hands, that's okay if that's not the way you worship. We want you to be authentic, authentically who you are. And so let's just let's pray about that as we, we kind of settle in here. Father, I, I just lift this prayer up to you now. That if there is anyone who has never truly proclaimed who they believe you to be, that this is the opportunity for them to do that. And so whether they do it in a private conversation with you or they do it face to face with somebody else now or even later Lord let this be the time that they take that step of faith forward and proclaim that you are the Christ the son of the living God Our prayer is always that nobody leaves here the same as when